0: Welcome to Veneco Candanga, a Latino giant podcast examining evolving democracy and social movements in Venezuela. I'm your host, Juan Andres Nisle. Today's guest is acclaimed writer, director, and producer Clifton Ross. He has been reporting on Latin American revolutionary and social movements since 1982 and is the co-author of Until the Rulers Obey, Voices from Latin American Social Movements. His new documentary is Inside the Shadow of the Revolution, the Bolivarian Revolution Seen from a Social Movement Left Perspective. Clifton, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Clifton, you've been researching Latin American social movements for some decades now. Can you start by telling us what drew you to examine and study Latin American social movements and particularly Venezuelan social movements? In other words, what makes Venezuelan social movements distinct from those seen in other countries?
1: Well, let me just kind of clarify. Um, I've been working mostly with uh, revolutionary movements in Latin America since uh, the Sandinista Revolution in 1979. Um, my involvement uh, started in about 1981. Um, I started studying uh, what was going on in Latin America, mostly uh, Nicaragua in those years, and then um, uh, got involved in solidarity work in, in the 1980s into the 1990s when I, when I uh, worked with a um, person on a, the first collection of writings of Zapatista uh, political um, manifestos and interviews and so forth uh, in a compilation called The Voice, Voice of Fire. Um, so I've been, I really was more involved with revolutionary movements in Latin America um, up through the time of the Bolivarian Revolution um, when I got involved also as a solidarity activist in studying Venezuela. Um, in in 2004, I went to Venezuela. So, um My interest in social movements came out of that because we uh, entered a post-revolutionary phase of uh, Latin American history in in the 90s, really, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Socialist Project, um, and the the, uh, peace pacts that were made between the guerrilla organizations, particularly in Central America, um, and the governments of the region. So uh, social movements became much more important and a more uh, dominant, we could say, uh, force for, for progressive change um, starting in the 1990s. Um, and that was for a lot of different reasons, which we could go into if you'd like, but um, that's, that was when the social movements um, really began to uh, come into their own. Uh, and, then, and then through this millennium, uh, with the... Uh, Everything that began happening in uh, the 2000 uh, especially in Ecuador, um, when when social movements were really a big part of uh, Lucio Gutiérrez's uh, presidency, bringing him to power, um, they'd been organizing since the 90s, early 90s. So we saw a whole lot of social movement activity uh, emerging in the 90s and then in this uh, and this millennium. Um, so I started really getting more interested in the social movements in 2008. After I I did my first film about Venezuela, when which was a really a film that was very positive toward the Bolivarian Revolution, uh, and um, it came out in, in 2008 with uh, PM Press, uh, Venezuela Revolution from the Inside Out. That was my first feature
0: film. Most of the pink tide governments that emerged at the opening of the 21st century have started to show cracks uh, with their with their natural base. And we see this in Bolivia, Ecuador, and other countries that ultimately chose to pursue extractivist policies to fuel development. Do you think a petro-state like Venezuela is compatible with a kind of direct democracy that pink tide governments uh, promised social movements? Well,
1: um, Short answer, no, uh, but I think the whole, the whole, the whole thing is very, very complicated. Um, yeah, the, so there was the commodities boom at the, at the beginning of this millennium, uh, which led to high oil prices. So you have beginnings of some shifts happening in Latin America, political shifts to the left around two, nine, the late 90s. Um, actually, even as early as 1991, if you if you take into consideration the concertación in Chile, which was really the first big democratic um, um, uh, process that that uh, took place in Latin America of of, of great note um, in terms of shifting from a, a dictatorship to a democracy. Um, this really benefited the social movements, the rise of social movements, and the demise of a lot of the uh, revolutionary movements, because uh, the, the, as the process of open democratic openings uh, went, was underway, the revolutionary movements had less of a basis for uh, gaining support among uh, populations. So uh, the social movements emerged. and. We can look back in history and see always social movements go you only emerge in liberal democratic contexts. I mean that's crucial. So, so uh, the progressive governments of this millennium, which we saw at one point, over half of the governments in Latin America were center left or left. Uh, farther to the left of, of center, like Bolivia and uh, Venezuela particularly, um, and Cuba, of course. Um, but the social movements uh, emerged out of this liberal democratic opening that we saw with the uh, democracy promotion policies of the United States and the, the demise of these this very uh, extreme polarization that happened under in, in the civil wars, particularly in Central America, and um, the demise of the dictatorships in uh, Latin America, which had already begun in the in the eighties. Were these extractivist governments compatible with uh, democratic processes? I mean, not even to mention uh, direct democracy, because that's a whole other subject. But just let's just talk about good democratic institutionality uh, representative uh, liberal uh, democratic institutions that would safeguard any kind of democratic process those are all things you really need you have to have checks and balances you have to have uh, checks on power you have to have uh, separation of powers you have to have independence of powers Uh, you have there are all these institutional realities that you have to have in order to have even a functional representative democracy which is essential for a social movement even to emerge and prosper um, you can't really we, we've never seen social movements emerge for instance in communist under communist regimes this is just not where they 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 come up, they come up in liberal democracies so um, with the movement of these governments to the left, a lot of these governments came into power precisely because there were social there was a space opening for social movements to organize themselves and to promote some kind of democratic uh, process that would be favorable to the masses of people in in their country. So the social movements emerged, then the uh, the left uh, democratic governments emerged uh, on the backs of those social movements, uh, pushed forward and brought into power by the social movements in large part. And then we began to see um, these left governments uh, using, uh, with the commodities boom, uh, seizing on this uh, source of new wealth to uh, benefit their supporters, which is natural, um, particularly uh, people in the social movements, people and uh, that are less well off. Um, Now, what we want to see in a liberal democracy would be everyone benefiting, um, everybody in every class benefiting from uh, whatever new wealth comes into a country. Uh, um, In Latin America, the corporativist model was combined with, oftentimes with the um, caudillo, the idea of of the rule by caudillo, by strong men. And so you have the idea of a, of a strong man up at the top who is doling out money to his supporters uh, as um, un, in a model of the state as the head of a, of a great body. And all the different sectors of society would benefit from uh, the, the generosity of the state, but in turn they would be... Uh, they would support the, the state and the, the, the Uh Those who don't support the state and the caudillo uh, are excluded, of course, from the wealth. And um, so that's kind of brings us back to the whole question of democracy and the, the extractivist industries. And particularly if we look at Venezuela, um, most of the people who look at Venezuela today, who analyze it, especially those people on the left who I've been around, um, for uh, many of m- many years of my life, um, they don't take a lot of these things into consideration, and they still have a view um, of the world that um, is probably, you could say, uh, based on some Marxist-Leninist presuppositions or assumptions. Of, um, and especially as regards to uh, Latin America. So when they look at, at Venezuela, they see a vanguard party that is uh, leading a revolution um, that is that is in the process of transforming society as the masses rise up and support the Vanguard party and and push uh, to destroy capitalism and implement a, a whole new set of policies that we could call socialism. That's what, that's what they see. I see things quite differently, and I think if we look at things from the perspective of social movements, and if we value social movements rather than just inter- instrumentalize them as Marxist-Leninists have done. I mean, the Marxist-Leninists traditionally in Latin America. We can think of the Sandinistas. We can think of uh, Fidel and the Twenty-sixth July Movement, or any of the other guerrilla movements we've seen. They, they're 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 Approach to politics is to incorporate is to incorporate and and bring into submission the social forces of society um, under a vanguard party, um, and so really the only so they're they're completely instrumentalized. Whatever uh, uh, um, whatever aspirations the social movements have, or whatever interests or uh, um, aims or goals they may have had to be submitted to the, uh, the 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 will of the vanguard party. That that's that's one model, and that's one that dominated the, the solidarity movement in the United States, particularly uh, all the way up to the present time. Now, if you look at it from the point of view of social movements, um, and and with then you would. Want to see in a government not a vanguard party, but rather a liberal democracy, where there is a, a, a constant uh, contending for power and uh, and, uh, and a constant uh, um, a collision, uh, conflict uh, forces in society, that, which which one would see which in this would be seen as positive and productive. Um, and conflicting ideas, conflicting models for development, uh, trying one out and seeing if it works, trying, you know very much a pragmatic, what you would call a, an empirical pragmatic approach to um, government and social organization. Um, and in 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 such a context where uh, there is freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of, Of assembly, freedom of of diversity, uh, pluralism, and all these things are valued. Uh, Conflict is valued. Uh, Then you see social movements arise, and these become very progressive forces. So, what we've seen since the the commodities boom, we've seen this real divergence in Latin America um, between these very authoritarian um, old. Socialist models based on the idea of a vanguard party, which lent themselves very easily to uh, the corporativist um, development model that was already there, in you know, existent, hadn't um, had roots far, far back uh, in colonial times, um, with the idea of a led by a caudillo um, where uh, society was viewed as one. And with what one general will dominating it, sort of the Rousseauan idea of the general will, um, and where conflict is viewed as a negative, um, where anyone who disagrees with the Caudillo is a traitor and is viewed as uh, as as, as, apathia, um, as you know, a, a treasonous. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's one side, and then we see on the other side the the social movement, liberal democratic. We see things like the uh, the Frente Amplio in in Uruguay. Um, we're, you know, we're seeing Chile very definitely um, moving increasingly in that direction. It's been going that direction for quite some time. Um, we're seeing some shift in in Argentina away from the um, the corporativist, uh model that. Uh, Christina uh, um, Fernandez was doing um, uh, with Macri, who's who's more of a right winger, but he uh, definitely wanting to uh, pull the country back into more of a liberal democratic um, uh, direction. So, um, so it's easier; it's probably m- better to talk about these things as you know, liberal democratic uh, processes that uh, that fortify and and and, and provide openings. For uh, and, and opportunities for social movements to emerge, and the old left um, and uh, authoritarian and totalitarian um, uh, uh, tendencies on on the part of other uh, other governments, rather than thinking simply in terms of left and right, I think it's probably that this divide is a little bit more um, descriptive of where Latin America. Is at
0: this point. Your documentary, In the Shadow of the Revolution, interviews an interesting set of personalities that were once sympathetic to the Bolivarian project. One of the most interesting figures is this woman. Her name is Rodsaida Marcus Vera, a leader of a collective called La Guarura. The international mainstream media often paints these colectivos as paramilitary units that do the dirty work of the Bolivarian government. But this woman paints a different image. Can you explain to our audience what are los colectivos, and are they different from other kinds of social movements in Venezuela?
1: Well, I wouldn't call the colectivos social movements. I think this is a really big myth of Venezuela, especially on the left, the, the idea that um, all these government-sponsored organizations are somehow social movements uh, the colectivos like the Tupamaros the, the colectivos are really um, for people who don't aren't familiar with colecti- the colectivos they are basically paramilitary groups there are paramilitary groups um, of the Bolivarian government that do the bidding of the Bolivarian government um, comprise the uh, in large part by a lot of ultra-left types like the Tupamaros of Venezuela, which are distinct from the Tupamaros of Uruguay, the, but 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 inspired by them, um, the Tupamaros of Venezuela are um, revolutionary uh, um, armed revolutionary groups that go back uh, quite quite far back in history, back to the eighties and so forth, seventies uh, and eighties and, and they, they're they a big part of the colectivos. Um, so I, I wouldn't call the colectivos, I wouldn't put them in the category of social movements. Um, for the purposes of our discussion, I would say that we probably would have to start off by defining what a social movement is. And um, it, a social movement, as I, I would as I would define it, would be a non-governmental organization of civil society with distinct aims and purposes um, that funds itself, um, and I would distinguish it from an NGO, a non-governmental organization, or a non-profit organization, as we have in the United States, um, in that it is not formally organized. It's not formally formally constructed. Um, they're they're largely informal. In the case of, of Rod Saida, she's um, she represents a social movement. It's mostly the it's uh, La Guarura is um, a, an ecology environmental uh, indigenous rights movement. It. It's no funding from the government, unlike a lot of the other so-called social movements in Venezuela that the left loves to point to, uh, like the uh, F, uh, the Frente Campesino uh, Liberación Nacional, uh, Ezekiel Samora, um, the um, and so forth. A lot of these organizations that are co- commonly called social movements, that for instance uh, George Cicerello Meyer uh, talks about in his book. Uh, um, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, we are, I think, it's we are. Chavez, uh, um, it's his book on the social movements. Um, are not social movements? I wouldn't call them social movements. They're um, they're governmental organ- organizations um, that that. Um, yeah, uh, I think uh, George's book. I was just checking it. Is um, we created Chavez? is the name of his book. And he, there he's arguing that all these government-sponsored organizations, including Colectivos and the Comunas and so forth and so on, are social movement organizations. Well, they're government organizations, and they're operating as government organizations. The, communi- the so-called community radios are government radios. They're being paid, they're being sponsored, they're being and by the government, and they, they basically are being Sponsored to uh, produce government propaganda. So, th- I mean, we we wouldn't call Voice of America a um, a community radio station, um, and that's essentially what these things are. They're, um, and so so they 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 they're they have a less formal status, um, and they often supplant the the actual the real social movements. In fact, they have. Uh, supplanted them. In, in our book, Until the Rulers Obey, we have a, an interview with uh, uh, it's, uh, Maria Vicenta Dávila, uh, who is, has organized with Campesina women in the Paramo of Venezuela uh, for years and years um, as part of the autonomous neighborhood councils. Um, And the Autonomous Neighborhood Councils were there. They come out of the the popular education movements of the 1980s. And with Chavez's imposition, he called for uh, community councils in 2006. Well, the the idea behind this was to basically uh, uh, get rid of the Autonomous Neighborhood Councils and replace them with government-sponsored "Quote unquote neighborhood councils." Um, Maria de Vicenta. In two thousand and eleven, we did the interview with her. Um, she was describing people coming in from Caracas with a lot of money for little neighborhood projects, uh, a lot of the oil money um, to uh, do all sorts of things, and they that they were happy to give away to community councils but you would have to organize as a community council um, and submit your proposal to the state and be approved as a community council by the state unlike and this is a whole different process than what the autonomous neighborhood councils were were about which were which came out of the grassroots they weren't they weren't called from above they weren't funded from above they were funded by neighbors who were getting together so this is a difference between um, on the one hand the uh, the so-called social movements that are really not social movements, but government-funded um, uh, enterprises of that funded by clientelism, uh, by the patronage of uh, the government to its supporters. And on the other hand, the autonomous uh, uh, expressions of uh, the people's movements and of social movements that were autonomous and independent of the government. So... So, I, so what roadside represents are the autonomous social movements, uh, which are an endangered species in Venezuela, because the government has been very effective over the past 18 years or more um, in subverting all popular movements and grassroots democratic uh, um, endeavors by... Funding alternatives that they that that were created at the governmental level and came in and uh, just subverted the the people's uh, organizations.
0: You're listening to Veneko Kandanga and we're speaking with Clifton Ross, acclaimed writer, director, producer, and poet. Clifton. Your view of the Chavez and Maduro governments have changed over time, but what about your views on the traditional mood opposition coalition? Many of those you interview in your documentary claim the opposition aren't the caricature reactionaries that many on the international left esteem them to be. Has your view on them changed over the years?
1: Yeah, I think that um, Marguerite Lopez-Maya, who's an extraordinary um, uh, sociologist and historian, I uh, in Venezuela, she uh, taught at the Central University of Venezuela. Has written a number of books. Uh, I had chance to talk with her quite a bit this spring, uh, when, and she was talking about the, the 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 same sort of process that occurred with Chavismo, of moving from a very much a demo, democratically oriented. Uh, project. I mean, you know, up until two thousand six and seven, eight thereabouts, there was a lot of talk uh, by Chavez and a lot of Chavistas about participatory, protagonistic democracy, direct democracy, and and uh, distribution of power um, down uh, at, at the grassroots and so forth and so on. And then it moved into a much more authoritarian project, starting around two thousand seven, eight and thereabouts. Um, the same kind of process of transformation has happened in sync with that uh, in the opposition. Um, the opposition initially started off as a very much an elite-driven, oligarchical, although you can't really talk about oligarchies in Venezuela because they were killed off in the 19th century during the Civil Wars, but nevertheless uh, an elite-driven, um, uh, an elitist um, uh Process and elitist uh, group gathering um, that uh, uh, gradually, uh, gradually uh, came to a, a, a breaking point in two thousand four with the uh, the attempts to unseat Chavez. That the third attempt, the first one was a coup, the second one was an oil strike. And the third one was a uh, referendum in 2004. They were unsuccessful in all these endeavors, and eventually that opposition just completely broke apart. Um, and there was virtually no opposition to Chávez for any or- new any since from 2005 on to 2008, eight nine thereabouts, um, at which point... Um, a lot more of uh, the, the people began to uh, have problems with the way Chavez was organizing the country. so the, the, this really this began to disturb a lot of uh, a lot of people in Venezuela, uh, right wing uh, middle middle of the road people, um, and democratic leftists, people uh, from the old left parties like uh, uh, mov- uh, MAS movement towards socialism. The causa R the the radical cause or revolutionary cause, um, which had its strength in, in Bolivar and among the basic industries right there the CVG, um, <clears throat> which is uh, Venezuelan uh, Corporation of Guayana, um, Bandera Roja, uh, the far left um, uh, red red flag uh, Maoist party. Um, it began to reorganize itself. Uh, it. It had much more of a, se- a center on in social democracy. Chavez had actually radicalized the country to a great degree um, in some positive ways too. It got it got the politicians thinking about poverty and the problem of the poor. Um, it, It it got people thinking about the problem of democracy, where the representative liberal democracy had really gotten out of touch with the needs of the people and the aspirations of the people. And so um, a lot of the parties that were organizing the opposition were taking into account, for instance, some of the missions, the idea that the, the government really needed to start doing something to address poverty, endemic poverty in the country. And, you know, one of the problems with looking at Venezuela is we have to constantly be keeping a uh, up on what's happening there to understand uh, uh, to understand the the reality of the complexity of the situation and how um, at the moment when the oil prices were at their historic highs, Chavez was taking out massive loans um, on future sales of oil so he could fund his social programs. Of course, with the price of oil tanking in two thousand fourteen. Um, it's the, 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 the disaster has, has become, uh, un, you know, it, it exposed in, in its its naked brutality, at least uh, in 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 the way that the government is uh, trying to resolve the problems. Um, it's uh, it's decided that it would it's going to, going to pay off the creditors of Wall Street and the bondholders and uh, so forth. Uh, rather than continuing to import food, so it's the, this year. I, I was just reading that uh, imports have been cut by a third. Uh, last year they were cut by a half. So really, essentially, people are living on about uh, just a, a, a minuscule part of what they were living on in twenty four twenty twelve. Um, they're they're living on about a quarter or less of the imports that they had in 2012. And, and Venezuela lives from imports because it's the nature of the petro state. I write about this in my all in my memoir, um, Home from the Dark Side of Utopia, which um, I, I go into this quite a bit in depth and why the, the Venezuela is in crisis today.
0: Some would argue that despite the government's flaws, the opposition is ultimately at odds with the participatory ideals that many of you on your documentary have fought for years. Should democracy be restored in Venezuela? Would you say that the inevitable alternative to Bolivarianism is none other than a return to liberal representative democracy at the expense of direct participatory democracy?
1: They don't, they're not necessarily incompatible. Um, But but I think what's really true, and I think Margarita Lopez-Maya talks about this, you can't really have direct democracy without a liberal democratic framework. And she um, pointed out that the fact is that you have to have democratic institutions uh, in order for direct democracy and participatory democracy to have any any function at all, um, and I think this is really clear that when you have, she brings up the the point that you know if, if you have no democratic framework within which these liberal democratic framework within which uh, direct democracy can work, you essentially have um, something that is uh, well, you have what you have in Venezuela today. Uh, you have the, the community councils where you have direct democracy. Yeah. You have direct democracy in a community council and in a little neighborhood in, uh, for instance, uh, Merida or Barquisimeto or some uh, little city where the, a group of maybe eight to uh, 25 uh, local neighbors get together and talk about fixing the hole in the street out in front of the of the community center where they're meeting. Um, and, and they can... That you could call that direct democracy, and to the degree to which it functions it's it's it 's fine but it it has very little impact on the on the national on national policy it has no impact on arguably no impact on national policy uh, no impact on city policy or very little impact on city policy, and just a, a little impact on neighborhood policy because you also have. Uh, a city government, you have a, a state government, and you have a national government that you have to contend with in the, in, in the case of Venezuela and in, in most industrialized or um, uh, most nations in the, in the world. The, the, so that, in fact, uh, direct democracy, uh, people seem to think that they, they want more of it, but I think that what we're seeing in the modern world is that people actually want very much less of it um, in fact, um, while they tend to idealize it, they in fact, the, they tend increasingly less to participate in it. Um, so people would prefer to have the city take care of the whole in front of the community center rather than have to – uh put in uh organ- you know organize the voting uh, organizing the all the uh the forms that need to be turned in to get funding um uh getting taking the bids and um deciding on who to have to do the work um doing the o- overseeing the project itself that all in- Involves an incredible amount of time and expertise that most people don't really want to be involved in. They would much rather spend time doing instead of doing that at home with their families when they're not working. So, um, so I I think there's that's that's one real problem with direct democracy. The idea of direct democracy is very is very appealing to people who don't engage in it, but um, but it's not it's not exactly uh, uh, anyone's ideal who uh, has had to deal with it um, but people would like to see liberal democracy they'd like to see a separation of powers independence of powers powers that are not politicized um, and with so with that return of liberal democratic uh, institutionality in the country the uh, then there might be possibility of experimenting with some of the forms that Chavez proposed, um, but independent of the state um, in, uh, and, indep- and not politicized the way they have been under Chavez and Maduro. So that if, if you don't vote for them, then you don't get funding. Um, uh, and this has been ex- become explicit under Maduro um, that that your funding is dependent upon your voting for the official party. Um, so, I think if there were a return to liberal democracy with institutionality and and reliable trustworthy institutions uh then then th- there would be the possibility of opening up uh, new avenues for uh, greater citizen input um, then we could see the formation of really independent social movements that could pressure a government to to uh, Adopt policies and uh, enact policies that are favorable to uh, to uh, to the people in general, and um, more greater possibilities of citizen input through uh, independent, autonomous neighborhood councils, like there once were, um, and and other other forms of of democracy. But that that has to be the first step: is a return to liberal dem- democracy with uh, institutionality and independence of powers and separation of powers.
0: Clinton, what do you see as a viable solution out of the current political crisis in Venezuela? How can those who oppose the Maduro government, both the traditional opposition and dissident Chavista groups, overcome the government's increasingly top-down vertical style that seeks to crack down on any kind of accountability mechanism in place?
1: Well, I don't think there's any possibility that the that the, TESU, the ruling party, is going to uh, back off of authoritarian policies. It's in a defensive position where it, it, it's really attempting to consolidate complete control over its constituents and over its members. And it has no interest in any kind of democratic process whatsoever. Any any input from the grassroots. It's in fact uh, it's it's decided it's going to punish any kind of a democratic input. I mean, we see this uh, over and over again with the social movement for democracy in Venezuela, which was really an inspiring movement, starting in April and 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 uh, battling uh, government forces in the streets from April, the end of April until. Uh, until the beginning of August, uh, incredible, incredible, uh, powerful, brave, courageous um, uh, movement that that arose at that time, and uh, but but failed. Maduro just showed that he was going to uh, n- was going to just ignore them. I don't think there's any any hope that we're going to see any kind of change, any budging on the on the part of Maduro and the. Uh, the elite at the, in, of the um, Pesuv. um and but if if the, if the movement for democracy has done anything, if it's not succeeded in very much, it has done one thing in particular, really important. It's begun to fracture the the movement. It's begun to fracture the um, the, the Pesuv and the, the the Bolivarian elite, starting with uh, peeling off people like uh, uh, Luisa uh, Ortega. The the uh, Attorney General, the nation's attorney general, who's now in exile and is, um, uh, you know, really doing a lot to defend um, the movement for uh, change in Venezuela. Um, we're seeing now just in the past couple of days with uh, um, Rafael Ra- uh, Ramirez, the the um, the um, representative in the UN, who was uh, head of the the. Um, uh, Pele Vesa, the oil company, um, and been, has been accused of, of massive uh, corruption. Um, but he's now under attack. There's now a split um, with and with him on one side, and uh, Maduro and and others on the on the other. So um, I don't think I think that what we're going to see is a further fracturing of Chavismo and further fracturing of the Pesuv. Um, the really important force. Is the military, and um, Maduro has been has been ensuring that he stay in power by throwing chunks of the economy and uh, businesses and so forth to the uh, military. Um, The military is engaged in in massive drug trafficking, um, and it's now and in gold, and oil, and all the um, um, a lot of mineral. Uh, wealth uh, trafficking that trafficking that out of the country. Um, it's now uh, um, it's been in, it's been plundering uh, all the basic industries of Guyana and all, a lot of the nationalized industries. Generals have been in, in charge of those. So um, so that's that's probably what we're going to see uh, coming up is a more uh, military uh, defending its terrain, if the, if the 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 terrain it's been given by Maduro. On, this, on the On side of the forces for democracy, um, the mud has now the mood. Um, the democratic unity roundtable has now fractured uh, between those who are wanting to dialogue with the government um, and those who have been willing to uh, um, swear allegiance to the uh, a constitu- the fraudulently elected constituent National constituent assembly, um, people from the the old Accion Democratica. Um, party uh, in particular, um, and those who don't feel that there is a basis for a dialogue. Um, so politically, uh, the the mood is in disarray now. The National Assembly is just being ignored by the government and increasingly ignored by the people who uh, voted it into being because it's become it's it's been so marginalized by this government um, and. The repression this year really was quite effective. They they disarticulated the social movement uh, the, for democracy. They uh, the government uh, through repression and um, you know just and and the fraudulent election of the uh, of the uh, national constituent national assembly. Um, they they've essentially uh, destroyed and and then repression. Um, they've destroyed the uh, movement for democracy. So we don't really see any actors over there on, in in opposing the government um, that uh, have any uh, possibility at this point of, um, of really being heard. Um, the, The, the real, the most significant factor now for change is going to be the economy because Venezuela is now going to be reaching 2,000% inflation. This year it's going into hyperinflation. Foreign currency is, is lower than it's ever been. It, they, they, they've been printing a massive number of believe artists uh, money, their currency, uh, to, to pay off their internal debts. But now they can't even afford to pay to print their own money. So the money is, and, and, and even if the money were to be printed, it would probably not have, the, it would lose, they would lose money on the printing because it would lose its value because of the inflation by the time it even got into the hands of the, the people. So I think that probably at this point, that's about the, the most hopeful uh, light we can see at, if there's any light at, at the end of any tunnel. And there are a lot of these tunnels in Venezuela, um, it might be in, in international institutions uh, like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. All these people that on the left we've always uh, hated to see uh, come into any country, but Venezuela being having been destroyed by this group of people, um, I think there really are no alternatives
0: left to it. Are you overall optimistic about the pink tide in Latin America? What do you see as some lessons learned in these roughly two decades of progressive governments?
1: Well, I think that the pink tide is, has ebbed. There really isn't a pink tide any longer. Um, I think whatever we hoped might might come about from the pink tide, which I had hopes back in 2005, Um didn't pan out. Um, I think I think the scenario in Latin America is very complex. It's problematic even talking about Latin America as Latin America because every country has its own particular dynamic that is unique and, um, and quite distinct and um, the situation um, politically is, is also unique. Um, I think that Uruguay is looking is looking up. Things are looking pretty good in Uruguay. Um, Argentina under Macri, there are some real problems, but there also seem to be some possibilities of something positive coming out of that. And it's certainly not a pink tie government. He's he's definitely to the right. Um, I don't know that there's really. Anything left of the pink tide, except maybe Bolivia, and that is increasingly looking like it's going the way of Venezuela. Um, Ecuador has chosen to kind of move in in a very different direction uh, under the new president uh, Lenin uh, Moreno. He's uh, he's taking a very different course. He's looking more um, uh, kind of traditional, uh, classical ec- economics, uh, not very left weighing by anyone's standards, but um, he's really trying to get the economy together. And that seems to be a positive thing. Central America is still very problematic uh, because of the Sandinistas in, in Nicaragua and the FMLN in in El Salvador um, and everything that's gone on in, in Honduras over the past few years, the, the turmoil there. So I, I don't look to... Politics any longer for any kind of hope. Um, you know, left governments come into power, right governments come into power. There's a swing back, and there's a swing forth, and there and changes uh, in politics tend to be very slow, very uh, or very uh, temporary. Um, I think I, I would want to see more. Democratic openings in Latin America that would allow for the emergence of social movements and for the strengthening of social movements because I think that that's really where I find hope in Latin America the the movements to uh, defend uh, land against transnationals uh, that are poisoning their land with uh, extracting gold and you, you know so forth and so on uh, deforestation and all those things the, the Mapuches and In Chile, for instance, the social movements, I think, are really the only hope we have on this continent because uh, we we can see that any any kind of change that comes through a government, um, if it's not uh, supported by social movements and by strong support of the citizens, it's not going to it's not going to last. So um, I think the the pink tide came and went uh, as tides come and rise and they and they ebb. Um, But there are social movements and those that weren't too tied to the pink tide governments, um, will continue to grow stronger. And, um, and those who were bound up with the, the pink tide governments will, will fall and collapse and there will be something new coming out. Um, but I I guess I have faith that like roadside in our film, um, in the creative powers of the people, I think that's where we have to put our hope. I think that's where we have to put our faith. That's that's where I think we um, really can. Tr- that's where we can trust that there will come lasting change. And that's the only place where you can really trust there will come lasting change.
0: In the Shadow of the Revolution is a new documentary by Cliff Ross, writer, director, producer, poet, and co-author of Until the Rulers Obey: Voices from Latin American Social Movements. Clifton, thank you for your time speaking with us. Thank you for your, your interest. And this was Beneco Candanga, Venezuela, Democracy and Social Movements.